Message. I'm very excited for today. I've been studying and reading over this message, and I tell you, I'm excited. If I don't mess it up, we've got a great day ahead of us. Again, we're continuing in The Great Escape, which has been our walk through the book of Exodus. Boy, this is our 62nd message in the book of Exodus. Today, we're going to be in Exodus chapter number 32, so you want to get your Bible out. We're going to be in Exodus chapter number 32. Now, to give us a little bit of, a, of an update of kind of where we were, give us a little bit of a, a background. Last week on our message, honoring the words of God, right? The Lord reinforced the importance of following his directives, right? The one specifically that he talked about was the honoring of the Sabbath that he shared with Moses. And that came at the end of the instructions as he was sending Moses down. He wanted to make sure the people understood the punishments that would come along with them not following and honoring the Sabbath. But this morning... At the end of the 40 days, as now Moses' communing is now coming to an end, what's going to happen is Moses is going to work his way down, and he's going to be taking the Ten Commandments in his hands. And as he descends, he's going to make, make a very unfortunate discovery. God's going to let him know kind of what's going on with the people and what their commitment to Almighty God is really like. And uh, so as we jump into our message this morning, it's called The Intercessor. Let's pray for the message. Lord, I do thank you so much for today, and thank you for the opportunity, God, to bring your message. Thank you for the word of God, Lord. It is the key. It is the foundation. It is what all of our, our lives should be built upon. And God, as we learn today from this message, the intercessor, I'd ask God that you help us to have ears to hear, Lord, that we might receive what it is that you have for us. Lord, each of us will receive something different from the message, but God, there is some truths in this that are so powerful. And I thank you for in, in advance for what you are going to do, not only in my heart, but in the hearts of my brothers and sisters around the world. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, just to give us some review, I want to make sure we're always on the same page. So when we're picking up from our message last week, that honoring of the words of God, last week the Lord was really instructing Moses uh, at the end of, of, of their conversation, and what we saw was the relationship that Moses had with God, which was really really incredible. It was an amazingly intimate relationship. Actually, in Exodus 33, it talks about the fact that God talked to Moses face to face as a man and says, speaketh unto his friend, right? So in the closing of their conversation, God was finalizing and ensuring that, uh, that the people were going to remember the fourth commandment, which was the honoring of the Sabbath. And one reason why God was reinforcing that is because realize he had just given them this massive task, right? This idea they're going to be building the tabernacle and all that was going to be involved. This is a really big job. And he understands that he did not want them to lose sight of that directive of not working on the Sabbath. Because understand, God understands the way humanity thinks and our tendency to get so focused on something that we can lose sight. And what happens is this was a God-given job, and they may think, well, hey, we can work on Sundays or work on the Sabbath. And he says, no, that's not what this is. And so he wants to make sure that not only they remember the Sabbath, but also they remember what the punishments were attached to it. And we see the incredible love of God as he is, again, protecting them from their own failings, humanity from their failings. And we apply it to ourselves. Guess what? We see the exact same thing. God goes to the exact same extremes in protecting humanity, right? Because in our Christian lives, guess what? He wants to protect us and let us know about the consequences of sin. And nothing pictures that, the fact that God's willing to go to great extremes more so than the, the Lord Jesus Christ and his sacrificial death on the cross. But as it applies to these Israelites, right, what we're going to see is God's going to go even further. Not only is he going to reinforce it to Moses, but he's actually going to write them down to make certain that there is no confusion, right? The same thing he's done for us in his preserved word. 
God's given us the word of God. So there can be no confusion of what his expectations are. It is clearly written and preserved throughout time. And here's where we're going to pick up in our story, right? Moses has got the, the handwritten, uh, the, 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 the Ten Commandments written by the finger of God in his hands, and he's going to be working his way down the mountain. But before we jump into that Exodus 32, what I want to do is jump back a little bit further. We're going to jump back into Exodus 24 because we need to kind of look at the heart of these Israelites as we move into this message, okay? Remember, back in Exodus 24, they had just arrived at the bottom of Mount Sinai, right? There they are at the base of the mountain. God calls Moses up, and he gives them some directives for the people, really kind of some laws for them how to how they are to deal with, with one another, how they're supposed to interact, right? So Moses wrote down these instructions, and then he comes back down the mountain, and he reads the instructions to the people. And this is in Exodus 24, chapter, or verse number 3, Exodus 24, 3. Listen, this is their reaction to what Moses reads. And Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the judgments, and all the people answered with one voice, notice this, they're unified, and said, all the words which the Lord hath said, will we do? Will we do? We are going to do it, right? Now, I want you to remember this, okay? Remember that as the Israelites, right, they picture someone. They picture you and I. The, the Israelite people are picturing the individual believer. So let's keep that in mind. This is a picture of us. Notice in verse number 7, 24, 7, he says this, And he took the book of the covenant, right, and, the, and read in the audience of the people. And they said, okay, this is right again, All that the Lord hath said will we do, and listen to this last part, and be obedient. We will be obedient is what he says. So bottom line is we look here and we go, look, God's given them very specific instructions, right, on exactly how they should behave when Moses is going to be gone. Because in Exodus 24, he's getting ready to head on up into the mount. And what we find here is the fact that the people have already been prepared and told how they should act. And so they're ready, willing, and and able at the time to be obedient to God's word. But unfortunately, like most of us can attest, right, talk is cheap. It's not what people say, it's what people do, right? It's what they do. And that being said, let's jump into our text and sort of see how things are going back at the camp. Exodus chapter number 32, verses 1 through 13. Verse 1 says this, And when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down out of the mount, the people gathered themselves together unto Aaron. So all the folks come together and said unto him, Up, make us gods which shall go before us. For as for this Moses, the man that brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we what not what is become of him. And Moses didn't tell them how long he was going to be gone, right? He simply told them when he and Joshua left, he said, Wait until I return. Well, Sometime in Moses' absence, the people have forgotten their commitment to the Lord, right, that they made back in Exodus 24, and they come now to Aaron with an agenda, right? They have grown impatient, right? They've grown impatient waiting on Moses, and they are ready to take their destiny into their own hands. They are impatient, and they are entitled in this moment. Now, I think I would uh, be pretty fair to say that you and I have grown up being pretty impatient and living in a generation that's probably the most entitled that has ever, ever happened. When we hear this description of them wanting to take their destiny in their own hands, this really sounds like it's talking about us. Think about impatience in our society today. Think about us individually. I mean, you have it on your phone, right? You take out your phone, and you're going to download an app. And you hit the button at the, at the app store, and it starts to download. And you look at the little circle, and it's just going so slow. And you're like, what in the world? What's up with the Internet? What's going on? You know what? I don't need it that bad. We can't even wait for it to download. We're willing to cancel it. 
We think about the fact that, you know, we are microwave oven. You put in something for a minute. There are many of us that can attest to the fact there have been times when before that minute is over, we will pop the microwave open because we can't wait just a few more seconds. We sit in a fast food line, right? A fast food line. There's a whole meal being prepared for us. We'll be ready to eat. And we sit in that line and we become frustrated if it lasts more than a minute or two. What in the world's going on? And then here's one that really fits. Amazon. You go on Amazon and you place your order, right? Right now, a lot of us are ordering things online because of the calamities that are going on in our country. And buddy, it takes more than two days to get here. And it's the end of the world. We are impatient. We want what we want. And we want it now, right? So who do we picture in the Exodus? Remember? We picture the Israelites, right? That's them. So look at the wording that they use back there in verse number one. It says, up, make us gods, right? They aren't asking Aaron to make them gods. They are ordering him to make gods. They know what they want, and guess what? They want it now. Now, why do they want an idol? Well, guess what? Because humanity, we're naturally idolatrous. That's our nature. When we think of idolatry, you and I, in our day and age, we don't think about worshiping a statue per se. But what I want you to understand is the fact that that's not all that idolatry is. In Colossians chapter number 3, verse 5, it says this, Mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, and covetousness, and here listen to this, which is idolatry. So if we covet, we are idolatrous. Now, how many of us, honestly, have ever coveted something that someone else had? Now, I don't mean that you admired what they had, but I mean you, you wanted it for yourself, right? It got into your head, and you started thinking about it, and it got your imagination, and, and you started, it started gripping your thoughts, right? It's something that kind of took hold of us, and we got really focused on it. Now, I think a lot of us would like to, unfortunately, admit that this happens more easily than we would probably like. All of us fall prey to it. See, God issues warnings about covetousness and about idolatry because he knows no matter what the era is, guess what? We by nature are idolatrous. It does not matter, right? Where you go on the earth, no matter how remote the people group may be, if you go there and find them, guess what they will have? They will have gods. They will worship something. And why is that the case? Because guess what? You and I were born to worship God. It was designed inside of us to worship God. Our problem is that because of our overdeveloped egos and our rebelliousness, we want to worship God on our terms. What a convenient way to do that by creating our own gods, right? This is a matter of convenience. It's on our terms, right? It's the way that we want it to happen, when we want it to happen. These Israelites are ready to worship, and they want to do it right now according to the way they're accustomed to, right? So guess what? They need a God. Keep in mind also, what is their education? What have they grown up in? These folks have lived for over 400 years in an idolatrous, idolatrous culture of Egypt. So that's what they're familiar with. Verse number two. And Aaron said unto them, Break off the golden earrings which are in the ears of your wives and your sons and of your daughters, and bring them unto me. Now remember what Moses told the elders when he left. What did he tell them back in Exodus 24, 14? He says, And he said unto the elders, Tear ye here for us until we come again unto you. And behold, Aaron and her are with you. If any man have any matters to do, 
let him come unto them. He says, look, you got a problem. Bring it to these men. Well, guess what? Here they come bringing their matter to Aaron. And guess what? He obliges them. He does not stand against them like his brother would have. Aaron, at this point in time, he's not a leader. He is acquiescing to them. Now, yes, Aaron is a man who was selected by God to be used, right, to, to, to bring these people out. But understand, he has not gone through the sanctification process. He has not surrendered himself to the work of the Lord in his life yet. He does not even know about these facts. These things have been shared with Moses up on the mountain. Aaron is clueless. Verse 3. And all the people that break off the golden earrings, which were in their ears, and brought them unto Aaron. So Aaron was a part of the team, right, that delivered the, the, delivered the Israelites out of Egypt. And guess what? One day, he is going to be the high priest in the tabernacle. He's going to have this great role. But right now, keep in mind that he is still poisoned with what he was raised around. He's still poisoned by the old life that he lived, right? Thus, we see him fall back into idolatrous practices, even after all that he's witnessed. Imagine witnessing God do miracles, I mean, unbelievable miracles, and fall back into your old ways. That sounds crazy. But how many of us, as Christians, right? I can remember the day I got saved. God did a miraculous work. He came down and he spoke to my heart and he saved me right there on the spot. And we can all attest, if you're a Christian, you had a moment like that. You've seen God do the miraculous. Yet in our lives, have there not been times when we have fallen back on our old behavior and we've fallen back to who it is we used to be? Because you know why? Old habits, they die hard. They die very hard. So let's be careful not to judge Aaron, right? if we've done the very same things ourselves. Verse number four. And he received them at their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool after he had made it a molten calf. And they said, these be thy gods. Listen to this. These be thy gods, O Israel, which brought thee out of the land of Egypt. Okay? Now, why would they choose a calf, right? Why is a calf relevant? These folks, remember, they grew up in Egypt. They would have been very familiar with with a god named Hathor which was representative of a woman blended kind of with a, with, a, with a cow, and then also Apis, which was a bull. Both of these gods were very popular in Egypt, and guess what? They would have seen these little statuaries all over the place. They represented fertility and prosperity. Notice, right? It was the people that made the declaration. Look back in that Exodus 32, 4, and it says, And they said, These be thy gods. This was their proclamation, right? Not Aaron's declaration. Not only, right? Do they declare that these idols are their gods? But listen to this. They actually credit these false gods, this creation of man, the work of man, they credit with the deliverance of the people. And it says, which brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. Imagine that. Can you imagine someone crediting the work of God to the work of man? It seems impossible, but it happens every day. It happens every day. As people doubt God's existence, they deny his existence, and they credit things to chance, like creation. Or they look at their own lives and the things that God's done in their life and the way that God's worked miracles or stepped into their life, and yet they'll claim that credit for themselves because of their overdeveloped egos. We are a a mess as humanity. And one of the things, Jesus kind of gives us an example of this type of behavior. In Matthew chapter number 6, if you turn there with me, Matthew chapter number 6, we're going to go to verse number 2 first, and to help us kind of relate to the mindset. 
Matthew 6, 2 says this, Therefore, when thou doest thine alms, do not sound a trumpet before thee as the hypocrites in the synagogues and in the streets. He says, look, these people, when they would go and they would uh, give their alms, they would actually make a big deal of it. They may have, they, it says, that they may have glory of men. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. They've got recognition on earth. That was their reward. Verse number five. It says, and when thou prayest, Thou shalt not be as the hypocrites are, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and in the corners of the streets that they may be seen of men. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. Matthew 6, 16 says this, Moreover, when ye fast, be not as the hypocrites of a sad countenance, making yourself look all worn down and weary. For they disfigure their faces that they may appear unto men to fast. Look at me, look at me, look at me. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. You and I must be careful that we don't do and that we don't live the lives that we live for the recognition of man. We've got to remember, we need to be truly doing what we do for the glory of God. So in our society, we're not out there building these idolatrous statues, right? But that doesn't mean that we're not surrounded by idolatry every single day, surrounded by idols. And you know what? One of the biggest ones One of the biggest ones of all the idols that we worship is the one that we see in the mirror every morning. Take a look at this, 2 Timothy 3, 2 Timothy 3, verses 2 through 4. It says, for men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy. These things describe our culture today more so than I think they ever have. Without natural affection, truce breakers, right? False accusers, incontinent. Incontinent means they're out of control. Fierce, despisers of those that are good. Traitors, man, you can't trust them. They're heady, they're high-minded, they think they're something special. Listen to this last part. Lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God. They want to fulfill themselves rather than fulfill God. That is a problem that is in our society today. The scripture is referring to the world today, but guess what? It fits, it fits these Israelites. And isn't it fitting that it fits them in this moment for them? Because guess what? We mirror one another. Verse number five. And when Aaron saw it, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made proclamation and said, tomorrow is a feast to the Lord. Notice that, notice that Lord. That Lord is capitalized. That's talking about Jehovah God. That's not talking about the false gods. So we take notice that his proclamation was to honor God in this feast. Now, he's terribly confused. Don't get me wrong. Aaron is way, way, way off track about how it is to worship God. But remember, right? Remember where he comes from. His heart's in the right place. He says, hey, let's worship God, but we're going to do it through an idol, right? He's clueless in that respect. Remember, he's not heard God's instructions yet. He only understands the Egyptian experience that he grew up with, and he falls back on what he knew. And see, this is why discipleship is so incredibly important, incredibly important. When someone gets saved, guess what? They have an old life that they grew up in. They have the life of sin, the choices they used to make, and they're very familiar with that, and those old habits are still there. What happens is we need to instill in them the truth of the Word of God. They need to be given the words of God, right? That's what Moses is going to come do. He's going to come down. He's going to share some truth with them. He's going to help them to grow. He's going to help Aaron to grow. It's, 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 It's vital to the development of a Christian, And we see a beautiful, the greatest example of it ever is Jesus Christ with his disciples in the discipleship process. And yet, and yet, what do we find? Even after being taught by Jesus himself, 
walking with Jesus himself, some of the disciples will struggle with being faithful when Jesus isn't around. They were confident. And boy, they were resolute when Jesus was with them. Oh man, they stood. But in his absence, they faltered just like these Israelites. Remember what Peter said to the other disciples in the Sea of Galilee, right? Peter, who had given up his fishing nets. Way back, if you go to Mark 1, 16 through 18, you find that he will give up his fishing nets, become a fisher of men, right? Now, but this is what he says when he's discouraged at Jesus' absence. John 21, 3. Simon Peter saith unto them, I go a fishing. Remember, he's no longer a fisherman. I go a fishing. They say unto him, we also go with thee. Not only is he now going, walking away from what he's been called to do, but he's taking other people with him. They went forth and entered into a ship immediately, and that night they caught nothing, right? And we know that Jesus will show up, right? He's going to appear on the shore, and they're going to see him, and he's going to take their failure, and he's going to use it as, a, as, a, as an opportunity to refocus them on the reason why they were there, the reason why they live, which is to reach the world. He's going to use their failure as an opportunity to teach. You and I as parents, right, we would call this a, a teaching moment, right? Our child does something wrong, we step in and we teach them through their failure, just like we're going to see Moses, right? In this failure of the golden calf, we're going to see him teach valuable lessons to Aaron and the Israelites. But that's going to be for the next lesson. All right, verse number six. And they rose up early in the morning and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and to drink and rose up to play. Okay, so these naturally rebellious, right? These naturally rebellious Israelites, boy, they follow their earthly wisdom they, that they already possess, which is that Egyptian mindset. And guess what they do? They indulge their flesh, right? They indulge their flesh. Their commitment to, to honor and to follow God, it has been completely eclipsed and forgotten based upon the fact that they want to fulfill themselves. This is something that happens to us every day. We've got to be careful of this tendency to allow the things we promise God to be eclipsed by our desire to fulfill ourselves. Listen to Peter's plea as he calls out to us. 1 Peter 2, verse 11. Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts, he says, which war against the soul. Listen to this. Dearly beloved, I beseech you, I beg you, as strangers and pilgrims, he says, look, you're not a part of this world. Abstain from fleshly lusts, which war against the soul. As believers, you and I are on the front lines of this war every single day of our lives. When you wake up in the morning and your feet hit the floor, guess what? You are in a battle, an absolute battle. Galatians 5, verse 16 and 17 says this. This I say then, walk in the spirit and ye shall not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. For the flesh lusteth against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. And these are the contrary, the one to the other, so that ye cannot do the things that ye would. Look at that wording there. Ye cannot do. You cannot do. God's called us to serve him. God's called us to walk with him. God's called us to reach the world. He says you cannot do that if you're focused on your flesh. If you're walking in the spirit, you can do it. But if you're walking in the flesh, you cannot do it. Those two do not work together. The Bible warns about being double-minded. It says a double mind is unstable in all of his ways. That's someone who's trying to seek the world and seek God at the same time. It will not work. Now, last week we discussed that the church age saints, that's us, right? We're saved by faith. We're kept by God's holy promises. We're sealed unto the day of promise by his spirit. So our salvation is established and it cannot be lost. But what we can have, right? What can happen to us when we fall into sin, when we lose sight and we feed into our flesh, Right? We don't lose our salvation, but we can certainly 
affect our fellowship with God. We can absolutely affect it. And this is just where the devil wants us to be. Because when our fellowship is broken with God, because we've fallen into sin, because we've lost sight of who it is we are and who we represent, guess what? We become ineffective for God, right? We become ineffective for the work of God. Our life no longer makes an impact like it used to make. So you see, when you and I are truly walking with God, right? When you're walking with God, you cannot help but impact the lost world. It is the natural evidence of your life. As we walk with God, people are impacted. They see Christ in us. The Bible calls it a light, man. The only thing the light shines out of us, and people go, whoa, man, there's a difference there, right? They recognize and see that there's something about us, and it's not us, it's God shining out of us. So our lives are going to touch somebody. The problem with that is the fact that, guess what? When you're, hurt, you're affecting people for the cause of Christ, you are affecting Satan's kingdom of destroying people. He comes to seek to, to, to steal, to kill, and destroy. He wants our souls to go to hell. He can't affect our souls, but boy, he can sure try to mess up our life. And if our life is drawing people to Christ, let me assure you, if you're serving the Lord, and if your heart is right, and you're focused upon serving God, and you're working on being righteous and living for the Lord, you absolutely have got a target on your back, just like we all do. If you're trying to do the right thing, Satan is hunting us. He is looking for an opportunity to knock us down. He's actively working to sideline us at at, at any possible chance that he has, right? He is actively looking for a moment of weakness in our life. That's why in 1 Peter 5, 8, it says this, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about. This means he's hunting, seeking whom he may devour, right? He is hunting us. He's watching us day by day, looking for that moment of weakness where he can strike. That is his desire, to strike and to hurt us. Now understand, right? He can't touch our souls. He cannot affect my eternity. But he can destroy our Christian walk and how effective we are for God. It's kind of like basketball, right? If you ever played basketball or watched basketball on TV, If you've got somebody who's just killing it, man, they are a scoring machine, right? And let's say they're just raining threes. They've knocking out 30, 40, 50 points. What does the coach want you you to do? He wants you to bow that player out. You want to draw him to get get him to do things that he should not do, things that are outside of the rules. And if he does enough of them, guess what will happen? He'll be sidelined in the game. And now you didn't take him out of basketball as a whole, but you certainly removed him out of the fight that you're in. That's the devil's plan. He wants to sideline us in the work of God. It's the war against the flesh. The war against the flesh. He will feed your flesh. The Bible talks about denying your flesh that we might fulfill the lust. We might not fulfill the lust of the flesh. We want to fulfill the spirit, right? The spirit. This battle, right? This is the very battle that the Israelites are losing as we speak in this very moment, right? Now, they start out right as Christians, right? So many people unfortunately, may start out doing the right things. They may start out on the right path, but unfortunately, they lose sight of who it is they serve, right? And what happens is they start off honoring God, worshiping God, living righteously, growing, investing themselves, but then all of a sudden, that moment of weakness, that moment of weakness, it opens up the door, and the devil draws them, and the next thing you know, they've fallen. I wish... This was a rarity. 
I wish this was something that hardly ever happened. But in our day and age, it happens more and more. It's become the norm. Verse number 7. And the Lord said unto Moses, Go thee down for thy people, which thou broughtest out of the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. He says, go see, right? God sees the Israelites. He sees their sin. He knows exactly what they've done, down to every single detail. And, and I feel like I bring up this verse, or these, this, these two couple verses, in almost every message. But I'm telling you what, for our day and age, there are some verses, these fit us to a T, and they also fit the Israelites unbelievably well. Galatians chapter number 6, verses 7 and 8. Verse 6, 7 says this, Be not deceived, God is not mocked. For whatsoever man soweth, that shall he also reap. For he that soweth to his flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption, but he that soweth to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. Notice the word there, back in verse number 7, that they said, God said, which have brought, brought us out of the land of Egypt, they have corrupted themselves. So into the flesh, reap corruption. Corruption, right? This is written to the church as a warning to us, but guess what? Boy, oh boy, does it ever fit these Israelites. Because remember, they're a picture of us and we're a picture of them. Verse number eight. They have turned aside quickly out of the way which I commanded them. They have made them a molten calf and have worshipped it and have sacrificed unto it thereunto and said, These be thy gods, O Israel, which have brought thee out of the land of Egypt. Wow, not only does God recount exactly what they've done, but down to the last word, he recounts the very thing that they said in their declaration. Remember that verse said, Be not deceived. God is not mocked. He sees it all, man. Nothing escapes God's watchful eye. He sees it all. Verse number nine. And the Lord said unto Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. A stiff-necked people. We hear that phrase in some people. What does that mean? I'll give you an example. When I was a kid, I grew up on a farm, and we had a horse named Poco, P-O-C-O. And Poco was an obstinate animal. He was an angry animal. When you got on him, boy, I tell you what, he used to try to run you into posts or knock you off on the trees. But what happened, whenever you tried to, to direct him, you'd pull to turn him away, and guess what he would do? He would fight and pull the other way. He's what you would call stiff-necked, because you know what? Wherever the head goes, the body will follow, right? And these Israelites are exactly the same way. God's going, this is the direction I want you to go. They go, no, we want to go this way. So when you hear that word stiff-necked, I want you to imagine sitting on a horse, pulling those reins, and that horse is fighting you back, man, fighting you back, fighting you back. And guess what? That's a description of the Israelites, and guess who pictures the Israelites? You and me, stiff-necked people, stiff-necked people. Listen to this, verse number 10. Now, therefore, let me alone, that my wrath may wax hot against them, that I may consume them, and I will make of thee a great nation. God says, look. Let me just go destroy them. I tell you what, I'll start over with you, Moses. You'll be safe, but I'm going to wipe out everybody else. I'm ready to end the whole thing. Now, what's interesting about this, understand God's already given Moses a directive to go down and address this issue, right? So we know that instructions already been given. So this, when we think about this, some people go, whoa, you know what? He's going to wipe them out. This is an opportunity for Moses to learn a lesson. God is working through this. I want you to pay attention to the, lording, to the wording in verse number 10. He says, let me alone. Almost as if God is asking permission. Let me alone that my wrath may, understand the word may, not will, may wax hot against them, that I may consume them. So what we see here is that Moses is being tested in this moment the very same way, if you want an example of God doing this, back at the Mount, on Mount Moriah. Abraham, 
was told to sacrifice his son Isaac, his only son. And as he went up on that mountain and he went through the whole process and it came down to the point where Abraham literally had the knife in his hand. He's about to plunge it into his son's heart. Genesis twenty two twelve. God said this, and he said, lay not thine hand upon the lad, neither do thou anything unto him. For now I know that thou fearest God, seeing thou hast not withheld thy son, thine only son from me. God knew what Abraham was going to do. God knows what's going to take place in these moments. God is showing Abraham in this moment, Abraham, you are a man of fear, but look at the faith you now have. Look at what you were willing to do, Abraham. Abraham looks at that knife, looks at his son and says, I was willing to kill him. If you go to the, to the book of Hebrews in chapter 11, verse 19, it talks about the fact that he says he knew in his heart that if he were to kill Isaac, God would have raised him up. Faith, a man of faith. And God's given Moses a chance right here to realize his level of commitment to being the shepherd of these people. He's affirming his commitment to God. He's realizing in this moment he can stand against God Almighty that he's seen do the most miraculous and incredible things. And Moses has a chance here. He can, he, can, he can fold or he can stand. What will he do? Verse number 11. And Moses besought the Lord his God and said, Lord, why doth thy wrath hot, wax hot against thy people, which thou hast brought forth out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? He says, I don't understand God. Wherefore should the Egyptians speak and say, for mischief did he bring them out to slay them in the mountains? So the Egyptians are going to, what was the purpose of this? And he consumed them from the face of the earth? Turn from thy fierce wrath and repent of this evil against thy people. Verse 13, he says, remember Abraham and Isaac and Israel, thy servants, to whom thou swearest by, them, by thine own self. He says, look, you promised these men and saidest unto them, I will multiply your seeds as the stars of heaven and all this land that I have spoken of will I give unto your seed and they will inherit it forever. So in this moment, it appears that Moses is reminding God of its promises to the people. Now, is that what's happening? Has God forgotten his promises? No. And see, if that was the case, if God had forgotten his promises, <laughs> we couldn't trust God, right? You couldn't trust God because we would not know that he would keep his word. Numbers 23, 19, in description of God, it says, God is not a man that he should lie. God cannot lie. Neither the son of man that he should repent. He's not gonna change his mind. They said, hath he said, hath he said, and shall he not do it? If God says he's going to do it, is he not going to do it? Or hath, he, and, or hath he spoken, and shall he not make it good? He says, look, whatever God says he's going to do, he's going to do, right? The reminder here is actually for Moses' benefit, not for God's benefit, right? Just like Isaac's sacrifice, that was for Abraham's benefit, to reveal his level of faith, to help Abraham to see how far he had gotten. Moses is going to have all kinds of stuff to deal with when it comes to these Israelites. They are going to put him through the ringer. They are stiff-necked, and it's going to be a frustrating time. He's going to be shepherding sheep that do, many times do not want to be shepherded, and God is developing his faith and his commitment to them in this moment. You see, when things get chaotic, right, when they seem to be out of control, what we have to do is remember the promises of God, that character of God. Right now, our country is facing something it's never faced in, our, in, in a history that we can remember. And this is, this is a scary time for many people. Things seem to be out of control and getting worse. But I want to assure you, God is still on the throne. God is still in control. And God is teaching us through this time 
to trust in him. We are to walk by faith and not by sight, right? It's a clear principle, but it's hard to apply. If we get focused on fear, we will lose sight of faith. But if we focus on faith, we will lose sight of fear. God intends for us to walk by faith and not by sight. Hebrews 10, 23 says this, let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering. We trust and we do not waver for he is faithful that promised. God is faithful. He will do what he says he will do. God is a faithful God. He loves us, right? Notice also that in this moment, Moses Moses is confronted with this issue, this challenge of faith. It's up on the mountain, right? Where it's just he and God. He's not in the midst of his emotions. He's not down there looking at the people running around doing all the craziness and all the songs and the singing and all that he's going to witness. He's in that moment. Guess what? He's going to get caught up in his emotions. So God protects him from that in this moment and allows him to have this moment of faith here on the mountain where it's just the two of them. This is a teaching moment for Moses, not for God, right? Verse number 10 or verse number 14. It says, and the Lord repented of the evil which he thought to do unto his people. And the Lord repented of the evil which he thought to do unto his people. That word repent there, what it is saying is that God simply did not do what he said back in verse number 10. Back to verse number 10 real quick. Now, therefore, let me alone, right? Let me alone that my wrath may wax hot against them, that I may consume them, and I will make of thee a great nation. This is God in a moment of of, of, of anger, right? God issues a daunting challenge to Moses in this moment. Moses has an opportunity in this moment to either say, I'm going to watch out for me because he says that I'm going to be safe, right? He says, I will make of thee a great nation. He says, look, if you're going to worry about just yourself, here's your moment, Moses. This is going to be all about you. I'll wipe this whole place out, but I'll protect you. Moses has an opportunity in this moment. Does he play it safe and allow or allow himself, right, to risk his own existence and face God? right? That's the key. He looks for the sake of the people. Moses sets himself aside and makes himself a sacrifice almost on behalf of the people as he stands against God. Giving of oneself for the sake of protecting others is what we call a hero, right? A hero. And this is a a, a hero's moment for Moses, right? As he stands between rebellious people, an undeserving people, and an angry God, and he stands there as an intercessor for them. He intercedes for them. He is picturing in that moment the Lord Jesus Christ. He's standing there interceding for these people who don't deserve it between God's wrath and what they deserve. A picture of Jesus Christ. And guess what? He is the ultimate hero, right? The ultimate hero. He's pictured in Moses. But here he stands, a sacrificial savior for all of us as he intercedes for humanity. 1 Timothy 2.5 says this, For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. If not for him, we would be without hope. Absolutely without hope. But because of him, right, we have ultimate hope. God is so good, man. The question we have to ask ourselves, right, or are we as believers, are we walking with God, right, in fellowship and in submission 
for? Are we rebelliously walking on our own path to corruption? You and I get to choose. And then for those of you that say, you know what, hey, I don't, I don't have a relationship with God. Listen, you may believe in God. You might be religious. You might have an understanding of Scripture. But you would know in your heart if you are a child of God. He would convict you of that. You would know if you truly walked with him. God wants to walk with you intimately, personally, and you have a relationship with him that is beautiful, that is pure. If you've not received that and if you don't have that gift, I have some fantastic news for you today. See, because of God's love, right, he can restore us. He can restore us. He can accept you as his child and become your father. And he can put inside of your heart peace and love that would be is impossible to understand. The Bible says it's a peace that passeth all understanding. God can give that to you today. And it won't be through the person that you are. It won't be through the things that you do or you have done. It won't be through the religion that you practice. It's not about that. It will be by way of Jesus Christ that we have seen pictured here in Moses. Because guess what? Jesus stands between God and man. Stands between God and man. Because you know what? He is the intercessor. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for today, and I thank you, God, for the opportunity we've had to be in your house. Thank you, Lord, for the message from the word of God. And I would ask, God, that you now, Lord, uh, just help us to apply what we have heard. Help us, Lord, to realize we have the ultimate intercessor, a mediator between us and God, the man Christ Jesus. And Lord, if there is one out there today that says, I do not have that relationship. I may know about God. It's one thing to know about God, but it's another thing to have God in your heart and know that you're his child. If you're out there today and you say, you know what? I don't know. I'm truly right now, if I were to take my last breath, if this was my final day on earth, I would close my eyes with hope that I would go to heaven, but I don't know. And Lord, I know that you do know. And God, you're speaking to their heart right now, wherever they may be, on the internet, around the world. God, they could be on any continent. Lord, right now, their heart is being broken for the things of God. And Lord, you are drawing them to you. The Bible says that no man cometh to me, but the Father draw him. And then you tell us that you will lift them up. God, there are people being drawn to you right now with their heads bowed and with their eyes closed. If you're out there right now and you say, you know what? I don't know for sure. <laughs> I'm lost. I know in my heart that I'm not a child of God. I may have religion, but I don't have him. And I want him. I want to walk with him. Guys, 18 years ago, God came into my life and changed me forever. And he can do the exact same thing for you and give you a joy and a peace in your heart that you cannot, cannot compare to anything this planet has to offer. And with our heads bowed and with our eyes closed, if you want to receive that gift, the Bible says, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. It's a promise. It doesn't say might be, doesn't say could be. It says shall be. It's a matter of faith, not a matter of, of religion. It's not a matter of anything. It's not the practices of man. This is the word of God. Whosoever shall call upon the Lord shall be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made into salvation. God loves you right where you are, and he wants to save you right where you are. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter what your background. It doesn't matter how many times you have failed. He loves you right where you are, and he's ready. He's paid the price. The Bible says the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord, the gift. And that gift is being offered right now to you. The question is, will you receive it? God loves you where you are. He's willing to save you. He's paid the price. 
And all it takes now is your willingness to receive it. With our heads bowed and with our eyes closed, if you want to receive Christ as your Savior, remember, it's not a matter of the prayer. God doesn't care about the words of the prayer. It's the heart that he listens to. For with the heart, man believeth unto righteousness. So with our heads bowed and eyes closed, if you want to receive that gift, I'm going to give you that opportunity to pray right now. It doesn't take a preacher. It doesn't take a church. It's just between you and God, and he's there with you right now. And as we pray, if you'll mean it with your heart, God will save you right where you sit. With our heads bowed and eyes closed, if you want to receive Christ, pray with me this prayer and trust in God with full faith and ask with your heart. Repeat after me, dear Lord, I know that I'm a sinner and I am so sorry for all that I've done wrong, for the people I've hurt, for the things that I've done and the times that I've disappointed you. I trust that you are who you say that you are. I believe that you love me. I believe that you died on the cross for my sins, that you were buried, and on the third day you rose from the grave. God, I'm trusting you right now as my Savior. Lord, please come into my heart. Please save my soul and give me a home in heaven. Lord, thank you for coming into my life. Thank you for saving me. Help me live for you now. In Jesus' name, amen.